The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christie's.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, the Sudan crisis. How are artists responding to another war in the East African country? Plus, a show about the Marquis de Sade in Barcelona and Gwen John's Parisian interior. The photographic artist Alaka Eir tells us about the conflict in Sudan from its capital Khartoum and how this latest conflict is affecting him and other artists. I talked to Alice Mann, the co-curator of Saad, Freedom or Evil, a new exhibition at CCCB in Barcelona about the 18th century writer and libertine, the Marquis de Sade, and his artistic and literary influence, particularly in the 20th and 21st centuries. And this episode's work of the week is Gwen John's La Chambre sur la Cour, a painting of John herself in a Parisian interior, which is one of the highlights of an exhibition dedicated to her at the Pallant House Gallery in Chichester, UK. Don't forget you can subscribe to the art newspaper by visiting our website and clicking the subscribe link at the top left of the homepage. You can choose from a digital, complete or student subscription. Do also subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening and to our sister podcast, A Brush With, and leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Now, last month, fighting erupted in the Sudanese capital Khartoum and across the East African country. The conflict is a power struggle within the country's military leadership between the regular army led by General Abdel Fattah al-Buran and a paramilitary force called the Rapid Support Forces, or RSF, led by General Mohamed Hamdan Dagalo, better known as Hemeti. It follows a coup in the country in 2021, which ended the joint military-civilian government that had been in power since the dictator Omar al-Bashir was overthrown amid pro-democracy protests in 2019. Alakair is a photographic artist who was born in Darfur, the area in the west of Sudan that has been torn apart by vicious fighting and genocide over the past 20 years. He's among a number of artists in Khartoum to have appealed for news of another photographer, Saad Eltine, who had disappeared on the 18th of April, reportedly after his home had been searched by RSF forces. As talks continue to resolve the conflict with Saudi Arabia and the US as mediators, I spoke to Allah about the situation and the precarious position of artists in Khartoum. Allah, thank you so much for joining us from Khartoum. Could you tell us what the mood is like in the city at the moment? Well, um, I was on the other side of Khartoum, somewhere near the red zone where all the conflict is happening. And it is actually very scary there. It's quiet. Uh, no one is moving around the street. But uh, a few days from the beginning of the conflict, I moved to Omdurman to my uh, parents' home. It's much quieter here. I mean, there is no much explosions and gun sounds as in Khartoum. But it's also very scary as the RSF forces are moving in and out of the neighborhood. And the most scary thing is that the feeling that this will not end anytime soon. Could you give us an indication of what you and people around you are thinking? Because obviously we have this idea that there is a ceasefire at the moment and there are negotiations going on. But what are you thinking about these conversations? Do you have any hopes? Well, the, the, the thing is, there's big contradiction between what's happening on the ground and what we hear in the news. On the news, we just hear the same as what you hear, that there are some negotiations going on and there is ceasefire. But from the beginning until today, I don't think there was a day without any form of conflict. As we speak today, actually, it was very quiet in the morning, but 
after 10 a.m., we started hearing machine guns, and later we started hearing artilleries, I think, towards Khartoum side, and uh, the Air Force again started drumming the area. So I don't think there is any form of ceasefire, and um, I don't think people will start moving around anytime soon. Right. And you said that the particular fears that you have relate to the RSF's movements. Is that because the RSF are more of an unknown quantity than the so-called government forces? Well, I think the reputation of the RS forces is enough to strike fear on anyone here in Khartoum. And um, from what we hear from our friends and colleagues on the other side of the city, they started looting, jacking cars. I don't know exactly if this is the RSF forces or someone else, but I've seen lots of videos circulating in the social media and, and, and WhatsApp groups of the RSF breaking into particular shops, especially mobile phone shops and uh, gold stores and so on. They even started uh, jumping into people's homes and taking cars and other valuables. So, yes, I think I have strong justification to be worried about the RSF forces more than the army. Now, tell me about the position of artists in the city, because you've drawn attention to the current situation related to the photographer Saad Eltinay. I understand contact was lost with Saad on the 18th of April. Can you tell us more? Well, I think specifically photographers, it's a very difficult time to practice your art. And um, Saad was firstly arrested accidentally and later when they found the cameras and other stuff they were very suspicious of him and he was uh, incarcerated for quite some time he was just released a couple of days ago but since there's there's so much tension any form of movement uh, you get searched you get stopped a lot and once they find any form of equipment like cameras and so on then you, you start to get questioned even more from both sides because they are afraid of intelligence officers uh, going around but overall, the artists in Khartoum, since downtown Khartoum is a center of arts, many artists were trapped in the city center. Few managed to escape early, some spent a couple of weeks before leaving the city. And now the worrying part is, as many of these artists are uh, relying on their income to feed their families, we feel that it will be a little bit complicated to resume any form of activity that can help these artists to sustain their life during this tough time. Is it especially difficult for photographers like you? Because, of course, your work is all about Khartoum and depicting the city and its people. Is it more dangerous now than ever? I'm I'm sure it would be. Yes, um, photography in Sudan was always difficult and complicated because of the nature of the governments that uh, are in control of the country. But now I think it's much more difficult than other times. The fear of the camera is huge. Both sides are doing some harmful activities uh, that the citizens are affected by and no one wants these things to be documented. So having a camera in hand is definitely uh, a big risk. Absolutely. Tell me more about your practice because apart from anything else, I know that with your series Revisiting Khartoum and also Alone in the City, you've referenced the troubled past of the city and of the country of Sudan generally, haven't you? So you directly confronted the social resonances of the troubled past of the country. Over the past few days, I've always been thinking of what to do now, photographically speaking, as most of my projects are always referencing Khartoum. And um, the scars of the past are quite clear, like most of my projects, where you see somehow the political slash economical conditions has affected how the city runs and affected people of the city. 
And I think now this war will completely change the city and also change the way I feel about the city. To be honest, I'm, I'm not sure exactly how I'm going to talk about the city right now, but I'm in the middle of trying to figure out exactly how I'm feeling and transport that into photographs. Unfortunately, it's a little bit difficult to photograph nowadays, but I'm trying just to use photography as a way to escape this tough time. And of course, you set up a platform called The Other Vision, which is about photography and helping other photographers. Are you in touch with other photographers as part of that community and reaching out to them? The photographic community in Khartoum is very much connected and uh, we're always talking to each other. Uh, I think almost everyone knows everyone. So during these uh, times, we always try to stay connected, checking up on each other, you know, talking to each other in a way to just, uh, you know, stop thinking about what's going on. I've always been trying to engage other photographers in uh, a deeper form of photography here in Khartoum. And I think these times also require us as photographers to, to think about how can we talk about uh, and help and uh, address what's going on from our own perspectives. So um, I think our unity will help us to somehow translate uh, what we feel and what we see to something that uh, other people can engage with. Absolutely. And earlier on in this discussion, you talked about the discrepancy between what the news is reporting and what your daily life is like. Do you see then your role as extra important in that sense in trying to transmit the reality of what's going on in the city and the country more widely? I think the news is mostly talking to both sides of the conflict and somehow in the middle they try to reflect that the people are suffering. But I think in reality both sides are fighting and the bigger burden is on our shoulders, the public, and this is not really reflected on the news. And the sad thing is, as today, it's almost the fourth week, I think, and uh, since morning, I'm scrolling the news, just trying to see what's going on. And it's sad that this much of a conflict and news of Khartoum is somehow just became a, one of the headlines and, and, and nothing more. And this is actually very scary. And I think there's much more to be talked about. There's so much awareness about what's going on as so many people need help. There are no hospitals working. Very few hospitals are operational. And I think if this conflict continues for a little bit longer, people will run out of food and resources. So I think there's a lot to be talked about, yes. And of course, you were born in Darfur, is that right? And, yes. And I know that you've gone to Darfur to photograph the situation there in the, in the aftermath of the genocide and so on. So you know very well how terrible this could be. And lots of people are comparing this situation to Darfur and what happened there and what is still going on there. So is that to you a lesson that, that you're heeding in terms of how you're reacting to this present moment, the terrible events that happened in Darfur? Actually, this year I started working on a project called 20 Years Darfur which is about Darfur being in conflict for almost 20 years on and off. And uh, while working on this project, I got to talk to a lot of people who witnessed the whole conflict all the way from 2003. And with what's happening in Khartoum right now, I think there's uncertainty and fear. Like, if this happened in Darfur for 20 years, what if this went on in Khartoum for quite some time? Leadership here in, in Sudan, the army and the RSF, are not so considerate of the public's ability to be caught on in this war. And I really pray that somehow something will happen and this war stops before it starts to escalate. Because Darfur started with a very small spark, a smaller group of people attacking a smaller group of people. And then suddenly it became a whole region and a few million 
of IDPs and refugees living to other places. And 20 years of war in Darfur actually changed how Darfur functioned. When I think of Darfur when I was a young boy, it's quite different from Darfur now. And the camps that were the results of the of the conflict somehow became part of, of the city or actually enlarged the cities. I think Darfur is a very sad and tragic story and I pray that it does not happen in Khartoum Mosque. Allah, I just wanted to say thank you very much for joining us and stay safe. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. You can read more on this story at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS and Android. Allah's Instagram is Allah.Kheir, which is A-L-A dot K-H-E-I-R. Coming up, the Marquis de Sade in Barcelona and Gwen John in Chichester. But first, here's this week's news bulletin. The Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York plans to hire its own in-house provenance research team after intense scrutiny of many works in its collection, the New York Times reports. Calls for the Met to repatriate objects with provenance issues have mounted in recent years. In the past 12 months alone, Cambodian officials have called on the federal government to help ensure the return of heritage objects and the Manhattan District Attorney's Office has seized antiquities from Turkey, Egypt and Italy from the museum and returned them to their countries of origin. In a letter circulated to staff and quoted by the Times, Max Hollein, the Met's director, wrote that it is incumbent upon the Met to engage more intensively and proactively in examining certain areas of its collection and that the changing climate on cultural property demands that the museum dedicates additional resources to this work. Once appointed, the four-person provenance research team will consult with a group of what Hollein termed leaders, advocates and opinion makers in the area of cultural property and a committee of 18 conservators and curators to consider the ramifications of its collective policies. The Centre Pompidou in Paris will close from 2025 to 2030 under ambitious new expansion plans announced this week. As part of the radical overhaul, the Centre Pompidou will expand into 20,000 square metres of space located under the Gallery Piazza into an area occupied by disused car parks. These spaces will host the centre's cinemas, but also multidisciplinary exhibitions. Other elements of the project include a restaurant on Level 1, the refurbishment of the National Modern Art Museum and the opening to the public of a 1,500 square metre terrace on Level 7. An architectural competition is launched today and the winner will be selected in 2024. Work will begin in early 2026 with a reopening scheduled for 2030. The French president Emmanuel Macron has condemned an attack on a painting displayed at the Palais de Tokyo in Paris on the 7th of May. According to the French newspaper Le Monde, a man defaced a work by the Swiss artist Miriam Kahn with spray paint. Kahn's painting shows a small figure whose hands are bound performing a sex act on a larger, faceless individual. Macron condemned what he called an act of vandalism and added that to attack the work is to attack French values. Kahn's work refers to crimes committed in Ukraine during the Russian invasion. The artist said that the painting deals with the way in which sexuality is used as a weapon of war and as a crime against humanity. You can read these stories and much more on the website or the app. We'll be back after this. 
The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. This month, Christie's presents its online auction, Sculpted by Nature, Fossils, Minerals and Meteorites, which includes naturally formed works of art created by tectonic forces on Earth and in outer spaces. Leading the sale is the skull of a triceratops and a newly discovered species of flying reptile. The fossilised remains of other extinct animals and mineral specimens from over 3.4 billion years ago through to the age of dinosaurs also feature in the auction. And naturally occurring geological formations, including age-defying fossils, are showcased alongside the fine mineral specimens, sculptural meteorites and gogots. These natural phenomena hold both a scientific curiosity and a sculptural quality that places them comfortably within any interior setting. The online sale open for bidding on the 10th of May and will close on the 24th. The time-travelling Triceratops skull will be on view at Christie's in London during these dates. Entry is free and open to all. To find out more, visit christies.com. Welcome back. Now, the Centra Cultura Contemporanea de Barcelona, or CCCB, this week opened an exhibition dedicated to the still controversial 18th century writer and libertine Donatien Alphonse François de Sade, better known as the Marquis de Sade. The show explores the aesthetic, philosophical and political legacy of Sade, with particular focus on the period from the early 20th century to the present day. Sade was born into the nobility in 1740, but from early adulthood his libertine behaviour meant that he caught the attention of the French authorities and he spent much of his life in prison. Many of his writings were published and prompted scandal in his own lifetime, but 120 Days of Sodom, one of his most infamous texts, written in the Bastille prison, was thought lost until it was published in the 20th century. After his death in 1814, Saad came to be seen by some as a revolutionary, liberating thinker and by others as a pernicious and corrupting writer. The Bay's exhibition, Saad, Freedom or Evil, is curated by Antonio Monegal, a professor of literary theory and comparative literature at Pompeo Fabra University in Barcelona, and Alice Mann, professor of modern and contemporary art history at the University of Cambridge in the UK and author of the recent book The Marquis de Sade and the Avant-Garde. I spoke to Alice Mann about the show. Alice, the show is called Sad Freedom or Evil. Do you come to a conclusion or are you just asking a question? Well, we actually had a lot of debate about the title and whether or not we put a question mark after freedom or evil. And the idea was that it shouldn't be one or the other. As you can imagine, the idea was to sort of weave a few possible narratives which explore freedom of expression, artistic liberty, and also sexual liberty and uh, exploring desires, as well as then when desires turn evil and are employed by political regimes. So we have the idea that on the one hand, when the individual or two individuals or a group of individuals willingly participate in sadomasochism and sexuality and all sorts of sort of desires, whether they're fantasy or enacted, is quite different from when you have an abuse of power and there's absolutely no interest in what the other person, the victim, the unspoken person uh, is feeling or expressing. So freedom or evil was to try and make people realise that it's not black or white and to kind of enjoy that sense of questioning. And a lot of it, there's sort of four themes which try to pull them, not in different directions, but so much as perhaps open up to the idea as to why artists would explore sad sadism, how violence is everywhere. Uh, We're absolutely sort of inundated with images of violence on screens, social media, etc. And perhaps the greatest danger is to be numb to it. 
Right. And a lot of the writers or theorists or whoever have grappled with Sard, and I'm sure this is true of artists too, for them, you can't have one without the other. You need to read Sard to confront evil and to see the evil within the freedom and the freedom within the evil and so on, right? Exactly. You're right. It's the idea that you can't understand the sacred without the profane. So we live in a world of sort of reason and the irrational, and we tend to come back to grand narratives. But to understand something the opposite, we have to sort of have a sense of where we are at. In many ways, too, I think the challenge is that the Marquis de Sade's writings, while they're very much born out of terror, the French Revolution, the decline and fall of royalty, and then ultimately the empire under Napoleon, you have the sense that he's sort of absorbing the fact that violence has been marshaled in so many different directions. Um, he's looking out on the guillotine as he's writing some of his work. Quite literally looking out at the guillotine, right? Literally, you're right, from his cell. Yeah. So you've got that sense of, I all sort of seem to picture him as almost smelling and stewing in the blood and violence of the period. And then that actually resonates quite powerfully with the 20th century, which, you know, obviously is a hugely brutal century of war, whether it's World War or Algerian War, Vietnam War, and then the war and terror marking the 21st century. So, again, there's a sense of how on earth is somebody meant to dialogue with that, outshine it. Uh, he talks about trying to dazzle the reader. And I think it is when, if you're writing in a period of kind of huge trauma and fear and violence and where sex is a weapon, the body is a weapon, then the only way is to go in extreme and to make it really excessive. And that's then what modern contemporary artists realise, hang on, that's something I could use too to actually waken people up. One of the key things is, I mean, there's a lot of focus on the 20th century and the 21st, in fact, isn't there? I, I'm interested in the rediscovery of Saad in the 20th century because it is so bound up with some of the key figures of the early 20th century and surrealism and so on, of course, one of your other major subjects. Tell us about that because one of the key factors is 1909, Apollinaire is absolutely central in this rediscovery and publishes the texts and so on. Yeah, you're right. So, I mean, basically... Guillaume Apollinaire decides to announce that the Marquis de Sade is perhaps the key to the modern period. He is a modern writer, you know, avant la lettre, that kind of idea. And the avant-garde, the Dada and then the Surrealists all gather around and they're not just sort of hailing the name of the Marquis de Sade for its own controversial sake, but they actually go to great lengths to publish his work, to discover his work. And the Surrealist writer Maurice Ayn just tracks down the the supposedly lost scroll of 120 Days of Sodom, the unfinished text he wrote in the Bastille just before it was demolished, attacked by the mob. And so he goes on this great pilgrimage to find it and to share it with people in Surrealist Reviews. So there's a sense of trying to bring it to the public rather than make it some elite sort of cultish group. But also it's true that then for them he symbolised the revolution as a figure who no matter what he faced and that being some 27 years in prison and more in an insane asylum, even though he wasn't deemed clinically insane. Surrealists were bringing Assad not just to the artistic circles, but to the public through their reviews and the dissemination and publication of their reviews, which was a kind of European network, I suppose. Um, but what's critical is that for them, they said in the first manifesto, the Surrealists, that Sad was surrealist in sadism. So they saw him as somebody who was living writing from the fantastic, he obviously did not enact the huge amount of violent orgies that he documents. He wasn't a saint. He was a libertine and he, in fact, was 
sentenced to death for sodomy, for sexual relations with his manservant, when homosexuality meant a hanging in the public square. But for them, he was somebody who, despite being incarcerated for so much of his life, still felt the need to create art, still felt the need to write, to read. He devoured literature that was sort of on his request for his wife, always in letters. And therefore, who had a great faith in the power of art to challenge society. So for them, he's revolutionary in that sense, in that faith that art is praxis. Yeah. Yeah, And just again, in relation to social conditions, it was crucial that the surrealists were reacting to a time of utter devastation of humanity and sought something to free them from the rational world that had produced all this horror, right? And so Saad's imagination offered them one of the routes through that. There were many routes, but his was really crucial, right? It's true. And it's also, I think, the idea of it being sort of so hyperbolic, so extreme, so fantastic, that it meant that people had to be sort of disturbed by it. They had to be pushed out of their comfort zone. And for them, because Surrealism was born of war, survived World War II, continued on to the 60s, and even in the events of May 68, of course, the name of the Marquis de Sade and his call for freedom of imagination was part of the graffiti of the walls of the Sorbonne. So you have a sense that he was always being cited as somebody who both was a name which was equated with this idea of freedom of artistic expression and someone who forced us to confront man's inhumanity to man in real life. And of course, one of the things the Marquis de Sade was very much against, he always said he wasn't a criminal and he was very much against the guillotine, which was the instrumentalization of man's inhumanity. It was an efficient machine for killing. And that was why, again, post-World War II, people like Odorno, Horkamar, Simone de Beauvoir, Camus, all quoted the Marquis de Sade again as sort of saying, how on earth can we understand the Holocaust, these systems of brutality and terror, and the fact that it could be your brother your neighbour, famously, they would say, who was the sadist, who would have turned you in and done worse. Yeah. Right. In surrealism, you mentioned the kind of long surrealism. Surrealism is so often couched within a period which is actually relatively narrow, but it continues, as you say, right up into the 60s and so on. And you reflect that in the show, don't you? So you, apart from anything else, in the most recent Venice Biennale, we had Leonorfini's drawings based on Saad and in the show you've got those plus much more haven't you which reflect that sort of long influence right the way through surrealism. Yeah it's true and also I was very determined to make sure we show that women or the avant-garde women artists are intrigued by these kind of new female types this new heroine that the Marquis de Saad offers us who is Juliet vice embodied as opposed to her virtuous sister Justine and because again it goes back to Polnair saying this was perhaps the example of the modern woman who wasn't limited by her body and the role of mother and wife virtuous being, but actually could have all the imagination and be very phallic as a female. But the show, the sort of a heart of the show does have an avant-garde surrealist element. And then it goes through to other aspects, which I suppose that's a kind of transgressive section. And then it goes through to challenges to perversity and the uh, censorship. So Robert Mapplethorpe's ex-portfolio is in there exploring homoerotic desire or sex and magic, as he called it, as opposed to S&M. And it goes through to, again, Paul Chan's work, which it deals with Abu Ghraib and juxtaposes that with the Marquis de Sade, or the fact that Surrealism's enjoyed a revival in a lot of contemporary art with Shuli Shang's work. Their work, again, explores the idea of a queering of the Marquis de Sade, where there's a slippage between gender roles and where very much, again, it sort of offers us a sense of the fantasy, but in that case, it's an installation which uses uh, technology 
So again, the moving image is really, really the theatrics of the Marquis de Sade explored a lot in contemporary art. And that's where surrealism's kind of found a whole new legacy in queer feminism. We have a post-porn installation, which again is very important for trying to think through where you can have BDSM where it's consensual and that that's not to be equated with sadism and the criminal cases of sadism that we have are, are indeed, as I say, aspects of the denial of human rights that we get in political regimes. It's kind of like surrealism opens the door for these debates to be taken in new directions. There's a lot of sort of homage to the surrealists in the sense of dream and desire and challenging to realism and trying to sort of get viewers into a different headspace, trying to get their bodies to react. So I think it's quite polemical that way, a little bit uncomfortable in the spirit of surrealist exhibitions. But it does, as I say, then push boundaries like Candela Capitan, you know, young Barcelona-based artist whose work Again, you know, a video installation 2020 that was censored for the 1975 single Jesus Christ 2005, God Bless America. So on social media, that work sort of exposes how nipples are covered up in Instagram. And yet you can, you know, switch to the left and you can get self-important without any problem. So there's a kind of policing which is very superficial. Even if you think of manga drawings, we have a lot of work around comics, graphic art and design. So it is everywhere in advertising and film. And then when it comes to so-called high art, we all get very anxious and want to censor it out, out of any kind of public space. So there is the fact that we should remember surrealism kept pushing those issues around boundaries and censorship. It was very clandestine. I guess one of the key things is that if, if you now read Sard, it's still as shocking as it must have been when people first read it in the 18th century, or probably even more so. There's a sense in which people are still not prepared for Sard when they read it today, I think, in the way that he is utterly transgressing boundaries, as is often documented, every boundary he possibly could yeah. in order to express this this utter freedom. And I wonder if the show can make that point in a way, return people to the texts to a certain degree, to confront that themselves, you know. That's a good point because we do include actually from the Bayonet from Paris, we have beautiful first editions of the Marquis de Sade's books. And then we also have prints which show the trade around the pornography trade. I mean, pornography wasn't a term in the 18th century, but the fact that these were mass produced then, let's say. But actually, one of the things I think is that ever since the scroll was sort of deemed a national treasure in 2017 in France and sort of the Marquis de Sade becomes canonized, the danger is... That's right, it, it came up for auction, yeah, we should yeah. say this. It came up for auction and the state, the French state, saved it, as it, it stepped were. Stepped in and it was a national treasure. And then the only fear, I, I mean, I always say the Marquis said must be hooting in his grave, but there is still the idea that the danger then is it just becomes another list and how many people actually bother to read him. And it is a breathless read and it is a fat big. If you're reading sort of Juliet and Justine, these are epic books. I mean, I've had no choice but to go through them all for research. But I do think it is something that the danger could be just becomes, as I say, a buzzword. And we open this show with a Googlegram. Juan von Cuberta, again, a sort of artist here who we commissioned to do a Googlegram, whereby if you put in a Google search, sad, freedom, evil, a debauchery in French, Catalan, Spanish, English. And then he's created a Googlegram, a huge wall-sized Googlegram based on the Man Ray's 1938 portrait of Stad beside the Bastille of Flame. And in that, when you go up close, you can see that putting in Stad comes up with everything from Shade, the singer, to bondage, to the dark web, to posters, T-shirts. 
I mean, so the point is it's become sort of popularised and populist to such an extent that the historical frame is washed down for the sake of the graphic imagery often. And that was our way of kind of saying, look, how many people actually really know who the hell the Marquis de Sade was? It is important to look at the books first. We have conversations with philosophers in it to sort of try and do a bit of that sort of teaching through. And then to think about where the legacy is. So it's not perhaps as shocking if you actually think of Google Gram as the portal, quite comparable to that little handheld pornographic novel that the Marquis de Sade was, was selling fabulously in the 18th century. I wanted to explore just a couple more of the artworks in the show, because ultimately, it's as well as being a show about a, a writer, it is an art show too, right? So there's that great couple in France, Mimi Parent and Jean Benoit, and you feature them. And I'm, I'm delighted to see this because very different languages, but two people who really grapple with this stuff in, in their own ways. Mm-hmm. Tell us more about those two. Yeah, I mean, there's over 60 artists in the show, but that was something else which was important to us was to show... Again, couples exploring the same theme, not always presuming this paternalistic way that the women were sort of under the shadow or doing what was told. Quite the contrary, they were often pushing boundaries much more than their male partners. But Mimi Parent we have in the mix because she helped Jean Benoit with a performance of 1959 dedicated to the Marquis de Sade, a reburial of the Marquis de Sade. And we have the fabulous costume that I first saw in the sort of 90s when I was a student in Benoit's studio in Paris and a sort of almost poignant to see it now on the wall and under glass case and everything there. <laughs> but Mimi helped him put it together. They came from Canada. She was the one who does maîtresse, which is a whip made of her hair. And there's an element of humour, which I think, as well as sort of anthropology, they, they, you know, they're studying different rituals, the fetish as something non-Western and seized by Freud and sort of used by us. But it is quite interesting to, again, think of them as having a dialogue and a sense of humour around their bodies, striptease, calling the name of the Marquis de Sade back from the grave to try and resurrect a lot of sort of more radical ideas in the 60s and in her case through to the 80s, yeah. And he, of course, literally branded himself with the word Sade. Yes, famously on the chest. And I also remember there is the story that Roberto Mazza jumped up because it was done in front of a whole group of surrealists who were invited to Joyce Mansour's apartment and tried it and fainted and collapsed and they had to get the <laughs> the ambulance. But Jean Benoit said to me, well, I was always tattooing myself, my name or the name of my girlfriends. And for him, again, it was trying to show that it wasn't all act, that he was actually going to push himself further. And there are works like Jean Moret in the, in the work where we have performance art and films of performance art, which is incorporating a lot more abject pain art, you know, cutting the body, very much dialoguing a lot with sort of Catholic imagery of crucifixion. So the, the church comes in for quite a, a tough time in the show, yeah. And of course, returning to the sort of freedom theme, one of the things that all great artists of the past, if they're going to be propelled into the present, is this idea that they free other artists. And I think it seems to me that that's one of the arguments that will come through quite clearly about this show, is that whatever we think about Saad and however much it might disturb readers now, today, he has liberated artists to make work in response to him and in the so-called Sardian imagination, as you put it in your book, that this idea that he has liberated lots of artists of different stripes to make their own work. Yeah, and actually I think what I found fascinating is seeing how just the sort of variety of approaches to him, and depending whether somebody's coming from Argentina, whether they work in Mexico, whether they're dealing with, as I say, America or we've Tokyo, we've got a really global group of artists, but there is a sense that 
those who actually decide to cite his name, and again, it was very conscious in terms of the selection process that there are people who specifically draw on the Sadian imagination and and are kind of pushing those boundaries. But there was the sense that he sort of began a story and then they weren't going to illustrate it, but actually try it out much more in their own decade, their own moment. So something fabulously personal, committed, poetic. Uh, there's that sense that it has to be good art too. You know, it's not a message. It's not sort of dogmatic like that. It has to be something that hooks the imagination like his writing did. But yes, translated into the visual. And that's the big challenge is if you read him, it's breathless as epic. And then you wonder how an artist can take that and turn it into a moving image, a painting, a drawing, film, or as I say, graphic comics. We even have uh, Madonna's sex. So we've got the sort of sense of how it's been popularized, branded. The fact that most people immediately say sort of Fifty Shades of Grey. And I'm going, no, not quite. <laughs> um, but it's, it's kind of like, it's quite interesting. So there's the Netflix presumption versus sort of us saying, actually, there's more. And also he was writing in a time of politics, of terror. And I'm afraid that resonates powerfully with sociopolitical situation today. Alice, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. Saad, Freedom or Evil is at the CCC Bay in Barcelona until the 15th of October. Alice Mann's The Marquis de Saad and the Avant-Garde is published by Princeton University Press and priced $47 or £40. And finally, it's time for the work of the week. At Pallant House Gallery in Chichester in southern England from tomorrow is Gwen John, Art and Life in London and Paris, an exhibition exploring the British-born artist whose career flourished in France in the 20th century. Among the highlights is La Chambre sur la Cour, a painting made between 1907 and 1908 in her rented room at 6 Rue Saint-Placide in Paris, featuring John herself sewing in front of an open window in that apartment with a cat by her side. Alicia Foster, the curator of the exhibition, and author of a new biography of Gwen John, told me about the painting. Alicia, where was Gwen John in terms of career and life when she painted this work? Well, she'd moved to Paris for good in 1904 and this painting was painted at her first independent address, which was on the Rue Saint-Placide, which is right in the middle of the left bank, at the end of the road of the Bon Marché department store, She's got her own room. She's spending time out and about in the streets of Paris. She goes to the Bon Marché. She's already modelling for Auguste Rodin. She started modelling for him in 1904. So she's really established herself and enjoying her life in Paris. Why did she move to Paris from London? <laughs> That's an interesting question. I mean, really at that point, if you wanted to be a modernist, if you wanted to be in the swim of what was happening in modernism, you would spend at least some time in Paris. And she, of course, she'd already been there in the winter of 1898-9 when she was training at Whistler's Academy Carmen, which is in the same area of Paris. And she obviously felt that this was the place that she needed to be. So she returned briefly to London for a couple of years, lived what she described as a subterranean life. And then, as soon as she got the chance, she went on a walking tour with Dorelia McNeil, her friend, and Augustus John's later partner, in 1903 and ended up in Paris in spring 1904 and then stayed in Paris and its environs for the rest of her life. She never really returned to England for any length of time after that. Right. And in terms of 
her position as a kind of independent artist. This was crucial because she had experience of people around her, women who were great, talented artists yeah. who had then become wives and so on and had to give up their artistic career effectively. Yes, I think the example closest to home is her close friend from the Slade, Ida Nettleship, who we've got in the exhibition at Pallant House Gallery, who married her brother Augustus. And now Ida was a very talented artist and had won prizes at the Slade. But after her marriage, her career was subsumed within Augustus's and she became the mother very quickly to five children, quick succession. And at around the time this painting of Gwen Johns was painted, Ida died in Paris at the age of only 30, just after the birth of her fifth child. And I think for a woman in those days, if you wanted to be an artist, you had to be very, very careful. Even if you were marrying an artist, the expectation was that your career would be second to his. And I don't think Gwen John would ever... <laughs> have accepted that. Absolutely. So let's talk about the work then. Mm. She is actually the model for this work, but it's not a self-portrait. Can you tell me more about that sort of distinction? Well, it's interesting. We only know that it's a painting of Gwen John, so to speak, because we know what Gwen John looks like. But if you were to put this painting in exhibition, there are none of the clues that would say to you that this is a self-portrait. The figure's head is facing down, the hands are occupied in sewing, there's no easel, none of the kind of gestures or conventions that would suggest to you that this is an artist. She's not meeting our gaze, there's no sign. When she moves to Paris, she becomes much more interested in painting interiors themselves as subjects. And this is a painting in which the figure that in the interior really become as one. And at this stage, she can't really afford to hire professional models, so she's using herself as a model. It is very interesting to think the the kind of sleight of hand, the deafness with which she must have captured <laughs> an image of herself as she can actually never have seen herself. Well, exactly. I was wondering, was the photograph involved? Was she, was she using photography? Was that a sort of uh, standard practice at that time? Not at this stage. I think it's just very deaf drawing and immense skill. By this stage, it's interesting, she's already been recognised as someone to watch when she shows her self-portrait at an exhibition of Slade students' work in 1902 is immediately bought by the Slade professor Fred Brown, who then features it in the background of his own self-portrait. So this idea that she was kind of unknown is not quite right. Of course, she has the problem of her brother Augustus, who's already a huge presence in the art world, as if she needed any excuse, but partly perhaps the reason why she went to Paris to escape that shadow and to live a different kind of life. Right, that's really interesting. In the work, she's in this interior of her home, as you say. Mm. You talk about interiors there. Obviously, at that time, there was the Antimiste in Paris. Was she socialising with them? Were they part of her milieu or was she responding to them in any way? Well, it's interesting. I mean, it's not just the Antimiste in Paris. I mean, they have their first exhibition in Paris in 1905, and that's people like Bonin and Vouillard, who, again, we've included in the show. But it's also the interior is such an important subject matter for artists of that time. It's already been an important subject matter in London just before she left. So critics at the New English Art Club where she showed described interior fever taking hold of the New English Art Club. In Paris, you've got Bonin Vuillard, you've also got international artists, people like Wilhelm Hammershoy, who is Scandinavian, who is showing next to Gwen John's painting. So it's not just about the Antimus in Paris, but it seems that she at least must have known of their work. I did some research for the exhibition in the book in her personal library, and there is a volume of art criticism with a chapter on Bonnard and a chapter on Vuillard. It's really unlikely that someone as involved as she was and so knowledgeable about what was going on in the prison art world would not have been aware of their work, given that they were 
so focused on a subject that she was absolutely fascinated by. Tell us about some of these details, because I love the floor. She's got the hexagonal yes. tiled floor yes. in the work, and she's described it in a very sort of minimal way, but it's absolutely perfect. Yes, it? it's beautiful, isn't it? And then there's the lace curtain at the window. There's the interior courtyard. I mean, these are kind of classically Parisian repertoire of interior, even the basket chair. If I quote to you from Gwen John writing to Charles McAvoy, who is the playwright brother of her old artist friend Ambrose, who painted with her at the Slade, she says to Charles, uh, the floor is of red brick. I've got an armoire of glass and white lace curtains at the window. I am Parisienne. So she's kind of saying, I think, through this painting, this is an artist in Paris. This is a Parisienne interior. And interestingly, she sends it back to the New English Art Club in London to be shown with a French title. So the original title, La Chambre sur la Cour, is hers. So she's absolutely stating her presence in Paris and saying this is a Parisian interior. And then, of course, there's a cat, which is a very signature kind of motif for Gwen John, actually. She paints cats beautifully right the way through. Tell us about the cat. The cat was named Edgar Quinette, even though it's a female cat, which is quite amusing. And it was named after the boulevard where Gwen John stayed in Montparnasse on her first ever visit to Paris. And the cat, who looks very kind of placid and amenable in his painting, was actually notoriously vicious, known for biting and scratching. But, I mean, joking aside, it's also a very difficult thing to paint a cat. They're notoriously intractable and quixotic. And the idea of making a cat sit still long enough to paint it, I mean, that's a measure of also of artistic skill, I think. Absolutely. And uh, images of cats all over the internet and social media and everything else. And so they're seen as sort of sentimental and twee and so on. But one of the great things I think about Gwen John, and a a sort of an estimation of how great an artist she was, was her images of cats are absolutely unsentimental. Yes. Wonderfully observed and so on, but wonderful in their own right. They're not twee. They're the opposite of that, aren't they? Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, it's interesting. I mean, cats are often associated with kind of spinsterishness. But, you know, cats stalk across Bonnard's paintings and, you know, to my mind, Rodin's life drawings of women, he had a studio full of models to draw on, are the equivalent of Gwen John's paintings of cats. She's living in a single room. She can't afford life models, so she chooses something that never stops moving but is very sinuous and fascinating to watch. She chooses her cat. You mentioned Rodin. Let's talk about that because you've got that huge reproduction of Gwen John posing for Rodin in the show. There's a characteristic in many recent shows of women artists to distance them from the male artists in their circles or who were crucial parts of their career. Mm. You've chosen to put Rodin right at the heart of the exhibition. Mm. Was that a difficult decision to make or did you just feel that you can't tell Gwen John's story without Rodin being there? Uh, It's interesting. For me, it's about the relationship of the work. And if you study Gwen John's work, the relationship with what she learned in Rodin's studio, particularly when it comes to drawing, is very apparent. And I felt I wouldn't be doing her justice or her honour and, and kind of exploring her work properly unless I actually paid attention to that connection. You know, the idea of just putting women artists with other women is actually, I think, in some ways often does them a disservice because it disconnects them. It makes the narrative a separate narrative. And actually... I went back to the research and actually looked at what Gwen John was looking at and how she related to the artists of her time. Of course, women are there. You know, we have some not unexpectedly obscure women artists who were her colleagues at the Slade and afterwards in the show. But then Rodin, Whistler, even Augustus John, her brother, have to be there too. 
She worked with these men. She had a relationship with them in terms of her work. And that, for me, is what's important. Right. And of course, almost exactly at the same time that she made this work, she posed for one of the great Rodin sculptures in the garden of the Museo Rodin now today. So she was his model and, and a model for really notable works by him. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And she also, at the same time, was experimenting with her own life drawings and paintings. And so what is also interesting to me is that in terms of the poses that he was interested in at the time, which are, like I said, they're kind of equivalent in some senses of Gwen John's cats, very almost like seen as if they don't know they're being watched, almost like animals, kind of the women crouch on the floor, they tend to their hair, their feet. It's, it, it's very physical. Gwen John's life drawings are very, very different. The faces and the identities of the individual models are always absolutely clear. And I think what's really interesting is not only what she took from him, but how she differed from him in her approach. And you can't actually look at that unless you put both of them together. One of the things that strikes me about this work and also just generally about the exhibition is how individual her colour palette is, Mm. how much she resisted the influences around her as much as absorbed them Mm. in the sense that I can't think of another artist who uses colour in the way that she does. It's completely unique, I think. Can you say something about that? There's these particular tones, these close tones, which are utterly unique to her, I think. I think it's a development from, I mean, you're right to say it's utterly, utterly unique and partly what the show wants to do and partly why I've always loved her work is that she's so distinctive and kind of unforgettable and, and so kind of original. But it does develop out of her early studies with Whistler, who was above all an artist concerned with tone and taught tone and the use of tone above anything else. There's a famous anecdote where Augustus bumped into him and says, oh, my sister, you like my sister's work? She's a fine judge of character in her paintings. And, and Whistler says, what's character? It's not character I'm interested in, it's tone. And her tonal sense was always super developed, absolutely exquisite. There's passages between that you can't almost describe in colour terms. The work is absolutely beautiful in that sense. But then, of course, you were right to pick up the Antimists in Paris because for them, it's about tone. It's about what they call nuance. That's what's interesting. It's not colour and line, it's tone. And they saw that as the closest equivalent to poetry in painting. So there's that kind of sense of the poetics of painting, which I think is very strong in her work. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are relationships with other artists working with tone, but what she does is utterly distinctive. And I think that's partly why she's so marvellous. Well, Alicia, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. The exhibition, Gwen John, Art and Life in London and Paris, is at the Pallant House Gallery from the 13th of May until the 8th of October. Alicia Foster's book of the same name is published by Thames and Hudson. It's available now in the UK, price £30. In the US, it's released on the 18th of July and price $39.95. And that's it for this episode. You can find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Amy Dawson, Julia Mahalska and David Clack. And David's also the editor and sound designer. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to our guests, Alla, Alice and Alicia. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction 
private sales online art anytime.